This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's really nice to see a beautiful crowd. The spring is coming. People are coming back to Detroit from Florida. We got the uh, the winter has not yet left entirely. It's still got its tentacles wrapped around our evenings and mornings. But Baruch Hashem, it's starting to get beautiful outside. I want to personally thank all of you for coming out here. You guys are amazing. Thank you if you're here in person. Thank you if you're here on Zoom. And I want to thank the amazing staff at Yeshua Beth Yudah Partners Detroit for setting up this beautiful lunch and learn. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's a website. And it's filled with incredible Torah knowledge. Now, this week's Torah portion is Achrei Mos Kedoshim. Right? It's the combination of two different parshas, and we're going to try to touch on esoterica today. Okay? So we're going to try to talk about stuff that you've probably not learned in depth before, but I think will be really, really interesting. Okay. Before, we're going to do a few smaller tidbits, and then we're going to do a deep dive into the topic of side locks. Payas, the things you see attached to actors portraying Hasidim in any film that shows Jews. Okay, here we go. Let us start, ladies and gentlemen, with the uh, Yom Kippur service. The beginning of Achrei Mos describes the service that the Kohen Gadol would do on Yom Kippur. The sages tell us, not the sages, the Torah tells us, there was only one day a year where anybody was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies, that was Yom Kippur, when the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies. And it describes in great detail in the beginning of this week's Torah portion the, sort of, the order of the service of Yom Kippur. Now, two interesting things. In a few previous uh, weeks ago, we, we read the story of how on the inaugural day of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, two of Aaron's children tried to rush into the tabernacle and bring an offering that was not uh, allowed, it was not required, it was not asked for, and uh, they met a very untimely demise. They were, they were, they were on the spot. They, their souls were taken from them. You don't barge in on God. That's the basic message. You don't barge in on God. You don't control the relationship. right? In humanity, imagine I were to date somebody twice, or even maybe I had a first date. It was like my inaugural date. And I had such an amazing time with this, this person that I went out with that that night I just let myself into their apartment. And they woke up in the middle of the night and there I was standing near their room. <laughs> that would be incredibly inappropriate. Like, orders of magnitude inappropriate. Like, I'm calling the cops now and I really wish I got that Colt 45 my brother-in-law keeps telling me I should hide under my pillow. Inappropriate. This is the inaugural day of the tabernacle service. You think you're going to barge in on God? You're so filled with love that you want to barge in on God? This is not how it's going to work. So after, then the Torah, this week's Torah portion begins with, After the death of the two children of Aaron who tried to rush in and barge in uninvited to God's sanctuary, God says, let me give you how, let me give you the, the framework of how this is going to work. I do want that relationship with you. I want you to be able to come into my house. I even want you to be able to come into my chamber, the Holy of Holies, but only in the right time, in the right place, and the right person. Okay. Now, that's the beginning of this week's Torah portion of Achremos. is a very long description of the service of Yom Kippur in the temple. There's actually an entire tractate in the Talmud called Tractate Yuma which deals with the service of Yom Kippur, almost entirely. Now, there's a famous part of the service that you're all familiar with. It's the story of the two goats. You guys know the two goats? The lots that were drawn? So there's these two goats that are brought in, the Okay, They were brought into the, tab- the temple on Yom Kippur. They were supposed to be of the same age, the same height, the same appearance, the same price. Essentially, about as, as same as you can get. You want two goats that are scoring 10 or above on the sameness scale. Okay, You bring those two goats to the temple, and then the Kohen Gadol puts his hand in a box and chooses lots. And one of those is going to say, La Hashem, and one of those is going to say, La Azazel. One is going to go to God, and the other one is going to go to the other side, okay? To the cliff, shall we call it. Going to go off the abyss, 
Okay, now what happens to those two, st- those two goats? Well, the, I mean, the ironic thing is it's not like either of them are going to make it through the day. You know what I'm saying? No one's walking home with a little blue ribbon from the fair, you know what I'm saying? Best in show. Neither of them are going to make it through the day. However, the Sa'ir Hashem, the goat that is going to go to God, is going to be brought as a sacrifice, and its blood is going to be sprinkled in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Holy Tabernacle, in the holiest of places, in the Kodesh Kadashim, in the Holy of Holies. What's going to happen to the other one? It's going to be taken on a long walk off a short cliff. Okay, It's going to be walked out of Jerusalem to a very distant path. It's fascinating. They believe now, some people believe they found the place roughly where the Azazel was thrown off of. I've got a good friend of mine, Rabbi Ephraim Schwartz, who's an unbelievable tour guide. Okay, He also pretty much tour, he records most of his tour guides every day on his WhatsApp status. If you want to tour Israel every single day without having to actually ever get on a plane, all you have to do is connect with Rabbi Ephraim Schwartz and get on his WhatsApp statuses. And every day he's taking people around, but he's also showing the many people who watch his WhatsApp status wherever he's going. So I remember one time he was taking a a family out it was right before Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and, and it maybe might have been between Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, and he took them to a place, and he said, we, we believe this is the place. This is where the Azazel was. This is where that barren, rocky cliff was, where the Kohen Gadol would shove the uh, animal off the cliff, and it would tumble down, and it would die. Now, these two offerings both affected atonement for the Jewish people, but for very, very different things. The one that was brought into the Holy of Holies, the one that was brought into the Holy of Holies was the one that the Torah says, Vechiper al HaKodesh mitumas b'nei Yisrael. It would atone for the holy from the unholiness of the Jewish people. It would atone for the holy from the unholiness of the Jewish people. What is this, what is this talking about? So this is what's known in the Gemara as Tumash HaMikdash VeKadashav, which means it's the defiling of the holiness of the temple and its sanctified items. So basically, if you were ritually impure and you walked into the temple, or you had temple sacrificial foods that were ritually impure and you ate them, or you were ritually impure and you touched sacrificial foods, that's called Tumash HaMikdash VeKadashav. The defiling of the temple and its holy sacraments. That's what the sa'ir, the, the, the goat that goes into the Holy of Holies, atones for. Now what about the other one? What about the one that goes out into the desert and gets tumbled off the cliff? You know what that atones for? All the sins of the Jewish people. As the Torah says, before sending this goat out into the, to the abyss, the Kohen Gadol would, he would confess all the sins of the Jewish people. And he would say on top of it, we have the language, we read about it on Yom Kippur. And he would say, please God, we have all sinned, the entire Jewish people. We've done so many different kinds of sins, intentional sins, unintentional sins, spiteful sins deliberate sins. Please, God, atone for all of our sins, and that would be the one that would go off and get tumbled tumbled off a cliff. Now, interestingly, on Yom Kippur, when we do the Yom Kippur davening, we go into lengthy discussions about the animal that goes, the, the, the goat whose blood was sprinkled on the inside in the Holy of Holies, We don't go at length into the other one that gets thrown off the cliff, but who's carrying the majority of our sins? Who's carrying the load? The one that got off the cliff. And you might even ask further, wait a second, (laughs) wait, wait. One is carrying the sins of those who entered the temple while defiled or ate of sacrificial foods while defiled. It's a small amount. When people went into the temple, they were very, very conscious of their level of holiness. You can actually go to excavations in Israel, and you can see how right outside the temple, there were all kinds of mikvahos, right? We found in excavations, there are a lot of ritual pools, ritual baths, right near the temple, because people would, before they would go into the temple, they would be constantly making sure they were at a high state of purity. So what percentage of people 
are really going to be violating the holiness of the temple and its sacrament. Why don't we take their small number of sins and put it on the goat that goes out to the desert and then take all of the Jewish people's sins and let that come into the Holy of Holies and get atonement there. Wouldn't that make more sense? Right? You know, it's like, you know, the 80-20 rule? Like, 20% of your customers will give you 80% of your problems. And the real one is that 20% of customers are going to make you 80% of your profits. But the truth is also that 20% of your customers will give you 80% of your problems. So it's like a, a 397 rule over here. You know, 3% of the, not, not even, like 2% of the problems may be like sacrificial cleanliness, uncleanliness in the temple. 98% of the problems are he was stealing and he was thieving and he was doing this and he was doing that. We need a lot of atonement. Why don't we take the one that's carrying the entire load of 98, 99% of the Jewish people's problems, bring that into the Holy of Holies to affect a atonement and then the other one could go off the cliff. Okay. The Maharil, also known as Rabbi Yaakov ben Moshe Levi Molin, who lived from 1365 to 1427 in Worms, Germany. He more talks about the idea of why we speak about it less in the davening, why the davening focuses more on the one that went in than the one that went out, but I'm going to try to expand on it a little bit. So this is a combo, so if you've got problems, you can have problems. Meaning, if it was just his, if it was from the Mariel, there's no questions. You know what I'm saying? Like, whatever, you could ask questions. You're always encouraged to ask questions in Judaism. But at the end of the day, if we don't know the answer to it, you're like, okay, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the Mariel. So I'm going to assume he's right, I just don't understand. I'm just going to say, he talked more about the why we talk about it in the Yom Kippur service. I'm going to extrapolate more just in terms of why the entirety of the sins were being put on that one as opposed to this one. So you can, what we call in Yiddish, dingzach. You know what dingzach means? <laughs> dingzach means like knock around. You can like throw, you, you, can, you, can, you can put dents in my, in my philosophies, not in the Maharil. Okay, fine. The Maharil says... that the atonement affected by the goat that went out to the abyss carrying the, the burden of 99% of our sins. And by the way, there's actually, there are opinions that say that by the time the Kohen Gadol finished confessing all the sins of the Jewish people on that goat, the goat couldn't stand anymore from the weight of the sins of the Jewish people, and the person who brought it out to the desert had to carry it over his shoulder because it was like just, it, it was overburdened. Fascinating. In any case, says the Maharil that the atonement that could be affected by the goat that goes out to the abyss and, and atones for all of our sins is dependent on the atonement of the one that was inside. Because if the one that was done inside was not done properly, the other one wouldn't work. And let's try to understand a little further. There has to be a kernel of purity. There has to be a kernel of gold to make something worth fighting for. You have a marriage. And it could be the marriage is on the rocks. It could be the marriage is going through a lot, of, a lot of marital strife. And guess what? Sometimes the right thing is to get divorced. Sometimes the right thing is to get divorced. Sometimes the right thing is to fight for it and to really put in everything that you've got to see if you can make this work. And a lot of times what that will depend on is, is there even a, is there a, a pure kernel here that you're fighting for? When you first started out, were you truly deeply in love with one another and being honest with one another and real? And, I, and now you, you've, you've thrown so much garbage on top of it but there's a sense of chadesh yameinu kekedem. We want to get back to the good old days. I want to get back to that original kernel. To the true beauty of the love of our youth. Sometimes you find out 
that there never really was a kernel. That the marriage was defiled before it even started. There was nothing pure here. One side was a pathological liar and had been lying and and being dishonest in in the relationship from the very beginning. There's nothing worth fighting for. You're trying to take away the dirt and you get there, what's underneath that? More dirt. And what's underneath that? More dirt. We need the pure kernel to make the rest worth fighting for. The Jewish people have a lot of sins. And that's okay. The Jewish people also have purity. But if that purity is impure, then we're in trouble. The first step is... We've got to atone for the core. But when you're dealing with the core, you're dealing with the most sensitive, sensitive thing. Think about a nuclear reactor. You have a nuclear reactor. The nuclear core is this incredibly powerful thing that can power millions of homes. I don't know if you know this. Just a few weeks ago, Germany, caving to environmental pressures, from not environmental pressures, but environmentalists' pressures, shut down their last three nuclear reactors. Because the environmentalists say it's not good to have nuclear energy. What are, they, what are they replacing it with? They don't have any other way to get electricity. They're buying some of it from nuclear reactors in France, but the rest of it, they just increase the production of coal. It's, like, it's the craziest thing. Environmentalists who are pushing to shut down nuclear reactors so we, we can then replace their energy load with coal. Alright, but that's neither here nor there. Let's talk about nuclear reactors for a moment. There's a nuclear core, which is this fissile material that is able to burn at incredibly high degrees and turns this turbine that makes the steam, you know, boils the water and the water turns into steam and it turns the turbine and makes electricity. That's a very volatile thing. You've got to deal with that. With that core, you are... The core done wrong is... Chernobyl. What happened in Chernobyl? The core was not treated properly. It was in the middle of a test, a stress test. And there's, I mean, there's a whole a fascinating series called Chernobyl. Five-part series showing you the whole story. It's an amazing, really, really well-done documentary about showing what happened in Chernobyl. Fascinating. But essentially, the core got overheated, and there was all these mechanisms in place, but they were shut down because they were running stress tests, and the people who were running them weren't really qualified because they were... There was a lot of issues that went on there. But the bottom line is, what happened? The entire city of Chernobyl and the 25, 30 miles around it are shut down until this very day, 50 years later. The groundwater of Europe was almost contaminated. There was a whole brigade of heroic firefighters who went in. Because what happened was the core was just dropping floor to floor, dropping into the basement, dropping lower and lower. And if it did not get stopped, it would have ended up flowing into like Europe's groundwater. And these people went in and they knew that there was not a great chance. Many of them, some of them maybe have not known, but some of them knew they were, they, they, they were going to save their country by doing this. But they, weren't coming, they were not going to be able to make it. And indeed, there's today... In the basement of the hospital of Chernobyl, they've sent, I mean, there's actually people who go in now, there's, they've sent in all kinds of, uh, depending on where you, how close you are to the reactor, there are, there are robots that go in. There is a firefighter's uh, uniform from the basement of a hospital in Chernobyl that is, like, more radioactive than, than entire, like, nuclear facilities, basically. Because that, that firefighter was running in and these people, eventually, they ran in and they were able to plug off something and stop it, that it would just stop there, it would be contained there. So it only was the city of Chernobyl that got evacuated and not much more. It was a dangerous thing. When you're dealing with the nuclear core, the nuclear core is so incredibly powerful, you've got to deal with it, with the most skilled technicians and the most delicate of delicacies. After that, the energy comes out of that nuclear reactor and it's going all over the place. Okay, a substation goes down over here. There was a big wind and the power storm came down and some lines are down over here. You know, like here in Michigan, after there's a big windstorm and a thunderstorm, you go on the DTE website and there's 5,000 people out over here and there's 2,000 people out over there. There's outages here. There's outages here. Your estimated time that it's going to be up by is three days from now and then they extend it. We, we know the drill. 
It's no big deal. It's not fun, especially if you have stuff in your freezer and it's not going to be for three days. But it's not fun. But okay, your power is down. There was a, a substation that got knocked down from a tree that fell into it. Or there's a, some lines, some power lines down the street. And now your whole block doesn't have, but your neighbor blocks has, does have. Okay, fine. That's fine. What you don't want to hear is that the, the, the core is compromised. And that core needs to be dealt with by the most skilled of technicians. We have the core of Judaism, which is the service of the temple. That's the pureness, the core. That's got to be delicately handled by the Kohen Gadol himself, by the high priest himself, in the Holy of Holies. Once that's taken care of, all the other sins are like the power station that went down over here. It's not good. You're in a blackout. But comparatively, it's not, a, it's not a, anywhere near as, as important. So the sacrifice that goes into the Holy of Holies is sacrificing for that little tiny 1%, so to speak, or of, the, of the sins. But it's, it's the 1% that's touching the core, the nuclear core. The other 99%, we can just send them out. And what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with us? The answer is, what is your core? What is your core? We have to be able to say, there's going to be a core in my life that does not get touched. It could be a room in my house. I will not allow filth in this room. Not filthy words, not filthy anything. Just nothing. This room has got to be my holy core. I've got to have one room in my house that's just holy. It could be one day a week. I just, it could be the one word. I, I, I will not say this word and that word and this word. Meaning we all, have, we all struggle. The world around us is so coarse. The world around us is just so encouraging of every, every you know, insanity and defilement and sacrilege. We have to know, what is my... Where is my core? Do I have a part of me that I realize this is so valuable? This is so precious. This is so holy, I'm not going to let it be touched. Only with the greatest of delicacy, with the purest of holiness. So I recognize not everybody here has the cleanest speech. I don't mean you guys. I'm saying everybody who's watching this later. You guys all have pure speech, and I imagine no one here ever said any words that your mother would blush from. <laughs> a lot of you are thinking, you got it, Rabbi, you don't know my mother. <laughs> but in any case, ladies and gentlemen, I'm assuming all of you are 100% pure. But if somebody watching this at some later date struggles with their mouth, and there's different kinds of struggles with their mouth, there's, there's dirty jokes and there's words. There's, you know, some people will never say a, a, a curse word, but they'll make dirty jokes all the time. And some people will. Well, curse like a sailor, but they don't make dirty, whatever. whatever. Whatever we struggle with. Some people don't struggle with cursing like a sailor or saying dirty jokes. They just talk smack about people all the time. There's many ways to skin a cat, and there's many ways to defile your mouth. So if you're talking smack about people all the time, you know, lush and heart, maybe it'd be better if you said some dirty jokes instead and stop talking about people. I'm, just, I'm not recommending it. This is not a recommendation, ladies and gentlemen, at all. Do not go home and say, Rabbi Burnham said. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make is that when you make, when you, <laughs> there's all kinds of defilement. There's anger defilement in your life. Can you make a room in your house that that room will never hear you yell again? Will never hear you scream again? The, the, there, there's a concept of saying, I need to have a Kodesh Kadashim. I need to have a Holy of Holies in my life. It could be something very, very small, but there's got to be a grain, a pure core, a nuclear core to your life. This is my Kodesh Kadashim. And it doesn't get touched. Okay. That's idea number one. Idea number two. Just fascinating. <coughs> the Kohen Gadol and Yom Kippur would change clothing multiple times. Why? Because when he went into the Holy of Holies, he would only wear simple white clothing. Why? 
Because the gold clothing that he normally would wear would be a reminder of the golden calf. So he would not wear the golden clothing, the golden vestments, uh, when he went into the Holy of Holies. So basically, he would, the, the, essentially, he would start in the morning and he would change into his gold investments. He would, he would do certain jobs, then he would change into his white clothing, go into the Holy of Holies, start the process of the service there, which included the sprinkling of two different offerings, blood, and then the bringing of the, uh, the incense, maybe a different order, but, but I'm not sure right now. I don't want to think about it right now because I want to just keep going. Then he would change back into his gold investments, his golden clothing, and do the regular standard services, the musafim and the services. Then he would change back into his white clothing just to go into the Holy of Holies one more time for one purpose, just to go get the, the fire tray that he had left there before. When he goes in, he brings a fire pan with coals and he puts the incense on top of it and it fills the Holy of Holies with the beautiful smoke of the incense. And he would go back in an entire time. He would change from his golden clothing. He would go to the mikvah. Every time he, every time he changed clothing, he had to wash his hands and feet before, go to the mikvah, wash his hands and feet after. Then you know, So like, there was a whole process. He would just do the whole changeover just to go back into his white clothing, just to walk into the... The Mishkan, the go, sorry, to go back into the Holy of Holies and take out the fire pan that he had left there previously. Based on this, there were a number of Hasidic masters who, when they would come home from davening in the morning, they would be very careful to hold their talus and tefillin bag. They would hold it, not only hold it, but they would hold it like this. You can sometimes see pictures of Hasidic rabbis walking with their people, and you'll see the rabbis holding his talus and film bag. And often, like, there's a number of stories brought down where their, their attendants, their students would say, Rabbi, let me hold it for you. And they would say, no, 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 this is, this is holy, I want to hold this. The Gemara similarly talks about how in, in Jerusalem... In Sukkot, they would carry, even though they had done the finish, the mitzvah of the lulav, shaking the lulav, they would carry the lulav and esrog together. I mean, there it's actually a little bit different, because there the entire time they're carrying it, they would have been fulfilling their, their obligation. But, the bottom line is, is that they would hold their talis and tefillin bags, especially in the uh, Munkach Hasidus, and it, they would say, because we see that the Kohen Gadol goes through an entire change of clothing just to go back and remove the fire pan from the Holy of Holies, it shows that the, even the removal of something is a holy job. So, what does this mean? Clearing the table on Seder night is a holy job. Clearing the table on a Shabbos meal is a holy, holy job. We have to recognize that it's not only, the climax is not at the mitzvah, the, the mitzvah continues, and there's special holiness to Finishing off the mitzvah. So this rabbi, he would go to Shachris in the morning, and then on the way home from Shachris, he would carry his talus and film bag clutched close to his heart, because this was also a mitzvah. The removal of the talus and film from synagogue and bring it back home. So I just wanted to know, keep that in mind, that the after process of any mitzvah, of any celebration, of a Shabbos meal, Yom Tov meal, is also holy. Now we are going to get into a little bit of an in-depth dive into the mitzvah of Peis. Now, side locks. For starters, by Jewish law... Ah! Okay, do me a favor, Rabbi Can you get me a different one? I just I dropped this one on the floor. If I open it now, it's not going to go quietly into the night. <laughs> Thank you very much, I appreciate it. And this week's Torah portion is the mitzvah of leaving Peis. Okay? And it's said over to the men of the Jewish people, not the women. So, just for the record, women do not have to leave Peis. Okay? The verse is Leviticus 19.27 Lo takifu pas roshchem Lo takifu pas roshchem You shall not round out the corners of your head 
and you shall not destroy the corners of your beard. Let's try to understand this a little bit. Okay. Rabbeinu Ephraim, who is one of the Tosafists, he lived in Regensburg, Germany, in the 1100s. I believe he died in 1174, somewhere around there. He writes something fascinating. Now remember, think about when he lived. He lived in Germany in the 1100s. Now, does anybody know what a friar looked like? When I say friar, in Hebrew, friar means like a sucker. But I'm talking about a friar isn't like friar tuck. F-R-I-A-R. What? Like a Robin Hood friar, exactly. So he'd be wearing usually a long, coarse, brown, like, you know, cassock or whatever it's called, like a long, a long sack, usually tied with a rope, right? That was part of the way they showed that they were very pious and they were not indulging in the physical world. Anybody know what their haircuts used to look like? Oh, like pudding basins, like, um, you know. Did you say pudding toss, basins? Toss, um, what was it called? Toss, and it was bald on top, and it looked like a... There you go, okay. Ranges. So it was a weird haircut. Call it like a halo. As a matter of fact, I think some of the, some of the reasoning they would give is because supposedly J.C., Wore like a, a thing of, of thorns, right? like a, a wreath of thorns. So the way the priests in those days would have their hairs cut is it would be bald on top, and then there would be like a strip of hair in a ring, and then it would be bald underneath it. Okay, so you'd have like a strip of hair and then bald underneath it. The prohibition against cutting the corners of your head now, I'm looking at you, and being that you were not born during the Cubist period of art, I don't see anybody here with cornered heads, right? So, what does a cornered head mean, right? My friendly robot has a cornered head, right? So the corners of your head are, you, there's a straight line that goes from where, well, my hairline is a little bit removed by a couple yards, Pushed back. <laughs> Let's imagine my hairline used to go to here, right? There's like a circle that goes around your head, and that underneath it is the corners of your head. So if I go like this, this is the corners of my head, the parts that would be struck out if I were to make a circle. So if you make a circle around your head from where your hairline starts to the base of your neck, the corners of your head are the areas that would be pulled out of that. All righty? Says Rabbeinu Ephraim in explaining the mitzvah. Listen to this fascinating thing. He says, It was very clear and, manifest and manifestly evident to the one who spoke and created the world. I.e., God was so powerful to create the world, he clearly knew what was going to happen. That the priests, they should be cursed. In those days, you have to understand the amount of suffering that was caused by the church against the Jews. Right? Meaning for thousands of years, we don't realize this, because today we, you know, you grow up and everything's copacetic, you know, people even do like these, uh, you know, the, the rabbi and the priest and they have meetings and this and that and the, the, the whole congregations and whatever. You have to understand, for thousands of years, the priests were the number one instigators of violence, death, destruction against the Jewish people. Obviously the most powerful examples would, let's say, be like the Crusades, right? The Crusades were made by Pope Urban II, right? And that was a, you know attempt to liberate the Holy Land from the infidels, from the Muslims. But on their way, this, this holy crusader crowd murdered and butchered and horrifically destroyed communities that were in their, in their pathway, especially in Germany. This is written by Rabbeinu Ephraim, who lived, I told you, what did I say? I think he died in 1174, right? So we're talking about the crusade started in the year 1096, let me see. Um, Rabbeinu Ephraim. Yeah, he lived from 1110 to 1175. So we're talking about he was living during the Crusades. The Crusades started in 1096, didn't end until the end of the 1200s. So he was living during the height, and Germany was on the way of all the Crusaders heading from England and France. They made their way. The, the communities that suffered the worst were mostly communities in Germany. So when he's talking about 
when he call he talks about the priests, he says they should be obliterated because those were the, they, they were the Hitlers. They were the ones who were instigating all the death and destruction of Jewish communities. So he says, Rabbi Ephraim says he knew that these friars they would they would have the custom that they would actually cut out the corners of their head because that's the, the the haircut I described that the friars would have. Therefore, God preempted them and said, Don't do that. To separate between the defiled and the holy. Okay. Interestingly enough, when I was a kid, in the. Uh, we used to call, I don't know if you ever heard this phrase before, but if your parents spoke Yiddish, you for sure hold this phrase. What do they call a priest? In Yiddish, Galich. a Galach, right? It's Irish. Well, no. So he says the word Galach comes Galach to shave because they used to shave their head in this very particular haircut. So for for ever since, I mean, look from from he wrote this in eleven in eleven fifty whatever it was. He died in eleven seventy five. When I was growing up, we still would call a priest in Yiddish a Galach, and he said it came from the way they would they would shave their corners of the head. And we are told by Hashem not to shave the corner of our head. Okay? They call that style a tonsure. Very good, a tonsure. Yes. Okay, thank you. Now, interestingly, there's more written about this in the in the Tishbi. He writes, uh, sorry, so the, sorry, the Sefer Tishbi was the one who wrote that the priests were called Galachim because they would shave the corners of their heads. Rabbeinu Ephraim says that not only that, he also says something interesting, I, I, I never heard this before, that thieves would often shave their head in a certain way so they should not be recognized. You go Mr. Clean for a while, it just changes the whole way your body... Like, you see somebody who always had hair, and then suddenly one day they show up to the office, Mr. Clean, like it's barely, they're not so recognizable. He said thieves would do that sometimes to look so different and unrecognizable, we're told not to do that. Now, of course, by the way, think about the Nazi haircut. The Nazi haircut is also a lot of hair on top. They didn't, sh- meaning the, the, the priests would shave the top and have the wreath of hair, and then shave on the bottom. But the Nazi haircut had a lot of hair on top. It had it was very it was bat- down to like a, almost nothing right over here. You know what I'm talking about? Like it, it was a very heavy removal of hair. It's very popular today. It's popular today, indeed. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so he says one of the he says that the thieves would do it, and then. He, even, he says in the Sephorno, which is another one of the great commentaries, he writes that when a person um, would shave their hair, they would look like fools, drunks, or priests. Okay. <laughs> now, let's now go into the longer, the, hold on a second. First of all, there's an interesting question. Are you allowed to comb? Are you allowed to comb your hair over here? Right? Because it, let's say I have to leave this hair here, right? Because it's part of my payas, it's part of the corner of my head that I'm not allowed to shave. Right? Now, now the beard, specifically, the Torah says, if you look at the language, okay, let me read back the language in the in the verse that we read. The verse was, you shall not round out the corners of your head, and you shall not destroy. The corners of your beard. A different language, destroy. So the Gemara goes into what does destroying mean, and it comes out with, it means with a straight blade. So the only prohibition, according to the Gemara, uh, and, and halacha indeed, the prohibition against shaving your beard is only with a straight razor. Now many of you might not remember this, but two years ago, this face over here was clean shaven all the time. I mean, not all the time. I would go between shaves quite frequently for a couple of days. But I, like, I had a clean shaven face. The Torah only prohibits putting a straight razor to your face. It does not prohibit using cream or a scissors, and the kind of shaver that I would use is essentially like multiple little scissors. There are many shavers that I was not allowed to use, because like lift and cut Norelco shavers, what they do is they pull the hair until the beard is like stuck, until the, the, the flesh gets close enough, and then this, the, the blade is cutting the actual flesh at the level of the skin. It's very fascinating. There's a whole... If you Google kosher razors, kosher shavers, there's no such thing as a kosher razor for your face. right? You're not allowed to put a razor to your face. But you're allowed to use a shaver, an electric shaver. There are some people who say that even electric shavers are not allowed, but we're not... That's not the mainstream uh, ruling. 
But there are kosher shavers and there are non-kosher shavers, and the most famous non-kosher shavers are called lift and cut. If you look at a commercial for Norelco for what a lift and cut will do, it will show you how there's a little thing that grabs the hair, pulls the, the skin forward, and then the blade cuts it right at the skin for the smoothest, cleavest, cleanest shave. That's not allowed, because that's like a straight razor, just very, very, very tiny. So the kind of shavers that I had... I still have them. But that would be the shavers that they don't actually hit your actual skin. It's just like a, like, a, like a very fast scissors, and it gets close enough. It still gets pretty close, but not as close as, as lift and cut. Okay. Now, I, but the removal of the payas, I'm not allowed to remove at all. It doesn't say you can't destroy my payas of my head. It says I can't destroy... Sorry, it does not say I cannot... It said I can't round it out, which means I can't remove it. I'm not allowed to use dilapidatory cream, for example, on my payas. I'm allowed to use dilapidatory cream on my beard. As a matter of fact, there are certain people in, in Israel who they follow a stringent opinion. I just told you before that the mainstream opinion is that you're allowed to use a shaver, just only certain shavers, not all shavers. There are certain people who are very, very makbid. They're very, very, um, they're very uh, stringent, and they won't use any shavers. But they will shave. Generally, these people, after they get married, usually they start growing a beard. But they would use a dilapidatory cream in Israel. But, of course, the hairs on the face are very, very tough. So you need a little bit of a stronger dilapidatory cream. And you would walk into my dorm. When I, when I was learning in, in a certain yeshiva, I only lasted there until the middle of 10th grade. But you would walk into the dorm on a Friday afternoon, and it, it smelled so foul. Because those creams have a lot of, I don't know, sulfur, I don't know what's going on over there. The whole dorm smelled like rotten eggs on Friday afternoon because people were burning their faces off with these incredibly high-powered dilapidatory creams. Okay, now. Okay, but that for sure is a lot according to all opinions. There's a whole question. Are you allowed to, call, are you allowed to brush out the corners of your head? In the process of brushing, you may pull some hairs, and you're not allowed to remove any of the hairs from the corner of your head. Again, I'm allowed to pull out from my beard, because I'm not, the only thing on my beard I'm not allowed to do is razor on the skin. But when it comes to the past, I'm not even allowed to pull it out. So if I, if I use a brush, and I'm brushing vigorously, I may end up pulling hairs. It's a whole conversation. The answer, by the way, if you're wondering, is you are allowed to use a regular brush, because you have no intention of pulling the hairs you don't want to pull the hairs. You want, at my age, you want to keep every hair you can in your head. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so if some comes out, it's very much, it's, it's Dabrashay and Miskav, and it's something you don't want to happen, and therefore you're allowed to do it. And interestingly enough, there's a book called the Ein Chinuch that writes that I heard from, he writes, I heard from the holy mouth of my father-in-law, the Kedushas Yamtiv, that combing one's payas and one's beard to make them look nice is Part of the, the Zekeli Va'anvehu. There's a mitzvah in the Torah to beautify mitzvahs. So I don't know if you'll notice, sometimes people have a beautiful, we, we all, I mean, we try to have beautiful Shabbos candlesticks. We try to have a beautiful Kiddush cup. We try to have a beautiful estrig and a beautiful estrig box. We try to have beautiful everything. We're supposed to make our mitzvahs beautiful. So there's actually brought down from the Kedushas Yamtiv. That, which is a scholar, I can't give you all the details right now, because I don't know them. But uh, the Kedushas Yamtev wrote that when one like combs out and brushes out his beard that looks nice, it's Zekhele Van Veo. It's a way of beautifying the mitzvahs. You have the payas and the beard because God said so. So when you make them look beautiful, it's Zekhele Van Veo. Now. What about the boys? Didn't okay, here we go. Wait, wait, wait. I got you. Oh, the curlers. Yes, yes, yes. Very important. <laughs> that might be included according to the Kedushas Yamtiv. If you're making the mitzvahs beautiful, then look, I mean, some people will perm their kids' hairs too. You know, I don't even know. It's like little, there are Hasidish women who will perm their children's hair into like a beautiful. The boys? The boys. Yeah, into like beautiful little ringlets, whatever. So, I mean, again, there is a concept that when you make it look beautiful, that it's a special. van Vehu. Okay, let's talk about how big the payas have to be, how long they have to be before the ear, behind the ear. Let's get into this. The Rambam, Maimonides, writes, this corner that we leave in the, in the, uh, on, the, on the temples, the Chachamim did not say exactly how big it has to be, and I have heard from my elders that it should be at least 40 hairs wide. Which is not a lot, actually. 40 hairs wide. Okay. Um, now that describes the width of them, but it doesn't describe the length of the payas. And according to that, the pretty confirmed consensus is the length of the payas has to be long enough that each hair can rest on the base of the hair beneath it. 
Okay? It's not very long at all. They say roughly it's a size two, right? When you're shaving your hair, you know, there's different, the, the clippers have different size, a one, a two, a zero is Mr. Clean. Basically, when you shave your head with a, with a shaver made for a beard, right? There's Mr. Clean, that's a zero. There's one, which is like, just like a, the faintest shade, but each hair is kind of sticking up on its own, right? Each hair is kind of sticking out. It's a very, very... And then there's a two where it's at least long enough that each hair could bend and hit the base of the next hair. So that's the minimum length required by halacha for payas. Again, according to Maimonides, the width is 40 hairs wide. The length is so that each hair should hit the base of the hair beneath it. However, of course, we have many people that write that we should leave them uh, longer. There's... um, Many that say we should try to leave them... There's, different, there's, there's many different shiurim, many different lengths. Some people say you should leave it until the bottom. And Okay. <laughs> different measurements for hair. I told you guys, it would be a little esoteric today, but how many times in your life are you going to get a class about, about payas? <laughs> Seriously, this may be the only one you ever get in your life. And the good news is when you get to heaven... God's going to say to you, so what do you know about Paeus? And you go, I'm a girl, I don't need to know about Paeus. God say, what do you mean, it's part of my Torah? Oh wait, actually, no, 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 I did. I, I, know, I know, I had one class. Thank you. Alright, if that happens to you and you're in heaven, shower blessings on me. Alright? <laughs> it's like three-dimensional. You have the width of the Paeus. Now many people go much longer, and you'll see indeed... By many Hasidim, they really will go almost up to where the head starts to go uh, horizontal, right? So the head, <laughs> it's a slopish, but the head kind of goes up and then goes horizontal. Many Hasidim will leave all the way up until where the head starts to go horizontal. Because again, remember, it's that corner, you want to leave that whole space. The minimum shear, as described by the, the Rambam, is 40 hairs, but they'll go out all the way up until there. So that's in terms of like width, Okay. Then there's the length of the hair you have to leave behind. That has to be long enough that one hair touches the next one. But how far down? And this is a really important one, because unfortunately, I see people who are Torah observant who don't know the, the, the shear. The, the, basic, the basic concept, the most accepted, is you have to leave the hair going down until the bone. There's a bone over here. Now, the reason why this bone is important is because this bone is the beginning of your beard. Because if you remember, there's also a prohibition in the Torah, you shall not destroy, you shall not destroy the corners of your beard. It doesn't say you shall not destroy your entire beard. It says you shall not destroy the corners of your beard. What are the corners? According to most opinions, it's these two right over here, this cheekbone, right? This bone that is right outside of your ear. The bone that makes a right angle with your ear. That's corners one and two on the right side and the left side. Then the bottom of your jawbone is... No, so you got one and two on the right side and the left side. Your, your, your bone on your cheek, which goes into your ear. Then the bottom of your jawbone on right side and left side, and the chin. So if you and the sage just tells us we have five corners of the beard. So here we go. Look, if you're looking, if you're watching, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry, you're not getting all the visuals. But alrighty, here you go. There's two right over here. There's two right over here, and there's one right over here. Now, at a minimum, your payas, your sideburns, need to come down to where your beard starts. Because if this is the corner of your head, where does your head stop at the beard? So there's two, the Torah obviously is describing two separate regions, two separate zones on your face. So zone number one goes down to over here, and that's where at a minimum you have to leave your payas until your sideburns. Now by the way, this is something that's, I, there, there are certain categories of mitzvah that are so easy to keep. That I always encourage, even somebody who's not ready to full-on be Shabbos and kosher observant, I say, if you have right now, there are many people who, they, they, they shave their head right up until the top, like until, until on top of their ear, they shave this whole thing, their whole face. I say, just leave sideburns, just until the, just until the, until the bone. It's an easy mitzvah, and, and one that really doesn't, even if you don't want to keep kosher Shabbos, those are much more difficult, I get it. But leaving the sideburns, 
is easier. Now, some people say you should actually go until the bottom of your ears, towards where the second corner of the beard is. You don't need to follow that. Just go to the ear. Just go to the ear bone, the, the cheekbone over here. Okay, now, what about the long payas, the really long ones? So there's actually a dispute. Some people say, okay, first of all, like this. About the concept of having thick, very noticeable, visible payas, there are certain people who say this is a beautiful thing, and it's a way to testify that you're Jewish. It even says that Mordechai had them, because it says that when Haman would see, every time Haman would see Mordechai HaYehudi sitting in the king's gate, he would get filled with anger. They say, why don't you just say Mordechai? Every time you see Mordechai, you get filled with anger. Because no, because Mordechai so visibly looked like a Jew because he would have these big, thick payas. So it's brought down that when it says Haman got angry, because even when he seen from a distance, he could see that not only did he see it was Mordechai, he could see it was Yehudi because he had these big payas. So there's a concept of making bushier payas, noticeable payas. And there's a whole story over here how there was a fight between the Muslims in the Holy Land during the Crusaders, the Muslims and the Jews, and, and there was a Muslim king and he was killing off all the infidels and... This Jew came running to him, and they were like, he was part of a caravan, he was traveling with non-Jews, but he wanted to show that he was Jewish, and he ran up to the, to the leader of the, the Muslim group, and he's like, these are my witnesses, these are my witnesses. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a people, I'm, I'm, and, and he, not only did the Muslim leader let him stay, but he hung two golden like pieces of the, of the loot that he found from the other people on this guy's pass, and he said, you're free to go. We're running out of time, or actually we're out of time, but I just want to say one last thing. Payas behind the ears, payas in front of the ears. Now, obviously, in terms of the Hasidim, they obviously wear the payas in front of their ears, generally speaking. There is debate about, at certain point, do your payas have any function whatsoever? Meaning, if your payas go down to all the way to your, to your waist, it seems like there's almost nobody who says that's of any value. It's like, it doesn't, once it gets past your beard, it seems not to have any more value, and that's brought down from as, as high as the Arizal. The question is, the top of your beard, the bottom of your beard, but if you have it down to your waist, it's, it's probably too long. There are some people who say, no, no matter how long it is, it's a witness that testifies that you're a Jew, so no matter how long it has value. But for most opinions here, it definitely seems that once you get past your beard, you've gone too far. You can, you can, you can, you can remove those pass. Not, not the pass entirely, but the bottom. There are those that say, very commonly in the Ashkenazic community, in the, in the non-Hasidic and Ashkenazic Lithuanian community, people have their payas behind their ears. They, you may, may have seen it, they tuck it behind their ears. And there's actually a great debate about that. Many people say, what are you doing? When you put your payas behind your ears, it's looking like you're embarrassed by your payas. So much so that Rav Chaim Kanievsky, who just passed away recently, was considered one of the greatest rabbis alive. He was very uh, mockbit, he was very careful that his children would not put their payas behind their ears. Um, so there are many people who say that putting their payas behind their ears is a bad thing, because it makes it look like you're embarrassed. You take your pants, you quickly put them away behind your ears. Just a fascinating tidbit. Of course, others say, no, it's a way of having longer pants without them being all over the place. But there is definitely talk about this as well. And um, that pretty much covers it for today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.